Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast. Voices in Recovery is produced by Freedom's Path Recovery Society, a registered Canadian charity. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider a donation to Freedom's Path Recovery Society. All donations go directly to assisting Freedom's Path in providing their services free of charge and helps us keep the podcast going. We are grateful for any and all donations. This podcast discusses difficult topics such as childhood abuse, drug and alcohol use, sexuality and sexualized trauma, and more. If you are under the age of 18, please speak with your legal guardian prior to listening. The opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individual and not those of Voices in Recovery or Freedom's Path or any other organization. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Blackfeet in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearspaw, Morley, and Chiniki. We acknowledge the Satina, Huradene, and the Métis, Inuit, status and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treaty people. And I will just let you tell us about yourself, James, because wow. I, I read your, just what, you were, what was on your mind to talk about, and it's just perfect. So. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, so my name is James Bellamy. I use the pronouns he, him. Um, I identify as uh, gay, uh, as part of the LGBT, uh, LGBTQ2 plus community. Um, and I came out uh, as queer um, at the age of 41. Mm. And so I grew up, uh, I, what, I'll, what I'll do is I'll give you a little bit of a background in terms of, you know, where this whole story started. Mm-hmm. And then I would love to hear what you would like to hear more of. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll start the conversation there. Yeah. Um, I am uh, 59, I feel 39, so that, that's <laughs> one of the good pieces of the news here. Um, grew up in uh, Saskatoon, uh, Saskatchewan, um, and Saskatoon in many ways was... Um, an urban center with a small town feel, right? Um, my family had roots in the farming community, even though I grew up in the city. Many of my relatives would have been farmers, you know, kind of in that area. Um, I am one of six kids in a blended family. My mother, one of 12. My grandmother, one of 24. Wow. Um, and in that culture, you, you know, you had large families, but family was really key and central, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to what community was about. I am the last child of six kids, um, the last of five boys. Um, so a boy, a family just, uh, you know, full of testosterone. Um, but there's enough of an age difference that I kind of grew up as an only child of six kids. Okay. The next sibling in my family is nine years older than me. Um, and, you know, in growing up, I saw and identified with family in such a strong, significant way that as I, you know, kind of approached that age of understanding, I recognized that I had an attraction to my friends that were guys mm-hmm. and not girls. Huge conflict when you think about the fact that this isn't the way families develop. Right? at least not in the world that I was living at that time. So this really was a struggle for me. You know, this idea that I was attracted to men, but wanted to have a family, wanted to be a dad, wanted to be a part of, of you know, that community. And so um, through that quiet, silent torture, um, 
I, I recognize that there seemed to be something going on for two of my brothers. They both identified at that time as, um, as born-again evangelical Christians. There was a, 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 a Satara Twins revival that went through Saskatoon at the time, and both of my brothers, closest to me in age, kind of got uh, into that uh, with the Alliance Church. And, Is that kind of uh, like the same idea as like the... Um Billy Graham crusade. Very much so. Stuff. Very, yeah. very, you know, kind of, um, you know, uh, evening preaching sessions and, you know, mm -hmm. people would come forward and um, accept Jesus as their personal Savior and uh, repent of their sins. And it really was a, um, you know, kind of a moral awakening for many people in the city of Calgary. And it, it had a huge impact. Um, the church that they were a part of became one of the largest evangelical churches in Canada at the time. Wow. Uh, they built a campus eventually that had a chapel that would hold 3,000 people. Now, in today's standards, that maybe isn't very big, but back then in the late 70s, early 80s, it was one of the biggest churches uh, yeah. in Canada at the time. And here was in little Saskatoon, 150,000 people. I observed that my brother seemed happy, mm -hmm. right? And so I thought... Maybe God can fix what's going on in my life. And I was aware of um, the concept of, of Christ, um, and yet I didn't really have any you know, religious drawings, but at least I thought, you know, I can try this. And I remember very distinctly on a bus ride home from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, I was hanging out with my one brother and his family, and um, I, you know, I just had this sense of despair, and I, and I made... Uh, what would be considered a profession of faith on January 6th, 1980, on a bus driving from PA Saskatchewan back to Saskatoon. And in so many ways, when I woke up the next day, it felt like I had landed in the land of Oz. It went from black and white to color. Yeah. You know, it went from, um, you know, a, a sense of a storm to a sense of beauty and calm. And all of these elements I believed were a part of what my future would hold. Right? And so I ended up uh, getting really engaged in, uh, in the church community. They had a strong college and career uh, group at that time. And uh, I made a, you know, all of these social connections and it was wonderful. And I, and I really felt that my life had been transformed. I had landed uh, in this uh, um, sacred space. But I think as reality would show, I still was who I was. And this conflict of being attracted to men and being a part of a community that didn't recognize it in any way other than as a sin. Mm -hmm. um, I was now starting to live this, um, this duality, this, this conflict. And I would, I would try, I tried everything. I tried reading I, my Bible, I tried praying, I tried, you know, um, having conversations in private with people, but, you know, nothing was really changing the core of who I was. Though I, I think I got really good at managing my behavior. Mm -hmm. And I think that was partly to do with the fact that I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to be seen as somebody who was, you know, um, a follower of Christ. Then the next step, of course, in my pursuit for healing, I, um, I decided that the best thing I could do with my time was to pursue actually a vocation as a pastor. Um, this could be a career of mine. Mm -hmm. 
and you know you get a lot of support from people in the church um, God's calling you you should go and so I went off to Bible College and it was actually during my time at Bible College where I um, where all of this kind of came to a head because you know you're in a social living environment with your peers um, and I still continue to struggle with my attraction to uh, some friends of mine and uh, found myself in a predicament. A predicament that was a false accusation, but it still took me before um, the leadership of the college. And essentially, I remember vividly the day walking into the Dean of, the dean of Men's uh, office and having a single chair in the middle of the room and it was surrounded by seven other you know, men uh, teachers and administrators in the college and I was invited to sit down and I was um, it was brought to their attention that I had been engaged in a sexual relationship with another student and they were asking me if that was true and the fact was is that it, it wasn't truthful the accusation but it struck at the heart of who I was mm -hmm. and so still struggling with this whole idea I willingly participated with what would be considered today um, conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that you could change somebody's sexual orientation. Yeah. Um, it went through a counseling program, it went through therapy, it even involved um, at that time uh, demonic exorcism. Um, and uh, I still remember that, uh, that evening very vividly as well too. And this, this really did cause a lot of trauma in my life because this idea that my sexual attraction to somebody of the same sex was embedded in me by some type of demon, um, that it was a sinful act, mm -hmm. and that it was going to end up with me in hell, um, was a very frightful feeling to go through and, and a point of desperation where you're really working hard to understand why isn't God changing who I am? What do I need to do? And it was actually during that time that, you know, I, I had been I had been dating an amazing person. Um, she was a delight to be with and um, I could see myself, you know, in a relationship with her long term and, and I shared with her my struggle and she was so supportive. And that was the first time where I didn't feel condemned. Um, so that, that relationship blossomed and we fell in love and we got married and um, we started having a family. We got involved in ministry, uh, vocationally. And, um, you know, uh, the story goes, uh, we, we, we held that family together for 16 years. But it was still during that time that I recognized that even though we had, as two individual people, a good, healthy, you know, uh, physical relationship and supportive friendship. Um, I never once dreamt as a straight person. And so it became clear that all I was really good at was managing my behavior, that God really wasn't changing who I was, yeah. that my authentic nature was, um, you know, part of, um, part of this identity that I was gay. And so I made the very difficult decision to go through that transition of being married to my kid's mom and to identifying as a gay person and becoming single again 
and exploring a relationship that really was truthful to who I was. Mm -hmm. And I think now looking back, I recognize, you know, when, when you were sharing with me, David, about the idea of, of um, you know, voices in recovery, mm -hmm. I think we often may see that, and, and with all valid reasoning, that this, you know, this um, support system and network is around things that have been affected by uh, the misuse of, uh, of certain drugs or, you know, uh, abusive relationships or these types of situations. But there is another whole element around religious trauma mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, as people are exposed to this idea that, um, you know, that there is this judgment that if a person doesn't meet uh, a particular moral code uh, according to a community, that they're told that, you know, God loves them, but he's still required to send them to hell for eternity uh, can be a very traumatic uh, experience. I, I can't imagine that not being traumatic, right? Like being told that. Yeah. And, I, and, and what's interesting is, is that, you know, people who subscribe to this theology really do, I, I don't doubt their intention is, you know, we, we love you and we care about you and we don't want you to go through this, so really here is the answer for you. But this idea that a person's, um, you know, needs to subscribe to a certain, a certain paradigm of what being human is about um, in order for them to avoid, you know, this idea of eternity in hell, um, I don't think people have ever really sought, sat down and imagined what it is that they're putting forward as a concept. Mm -hmm. It's so easy for it to roll off the tongue, right? As, yeah, which as, is scary. Uh, yeah. As just a, as a matter of fact, right? Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I think that that's where my story kind of lands. Mm -hmm. About 16 years ago, I, I took that opportunity to step out of that world I think as well, I recognized, um, keeping on with this Wizard of Oz uh, paradigm, that in many ways I began to see that, you know, what I thought was um, a lot of, a lot of supernatural was in many ways not much different than the wizard behind the curtain mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a, a simple man pulling weavers. Yeah. And I think it was the shattering of that illusion that um, you know that the Emerald City is really something that we, we need to pursue, um, and so I th when that happened, I I really did get a sense of you know clarity I think on that. Um, but again, the next step from my own journey was uh, getting away from this kind of egocentric uh, idea that you know, there is a creator for me who created me and that earth itself is almost the pinnacle of all creation. Um, you know, science began to, I, I got really engaged in this idea of the Hubble telescope. Mm -hmm. And I started to see these pictures and images and I thought, wow, that's so amazing what we're able to capture in terms of, you know, exploring this universe around us. I've never stopped to think about how vast our universe is. Mm -hmm. and, and that's only based on what we know. Um, and, and based on what we know, we have this idea 
that the speed of light, which is a, an incredibly uh, fast measure of time, that the universe as we know it from just simply one side to the other easily at this point measures 93 billion light years across. Mm. And this idea that, you know, um, this little blue dot mm -hmm. in one of a billion galaxies, uh, uh, one of a billion planets mm -hmm. in that galaxy, that our simple blue dot is the, you know, the measure of the universe. Mm -hmm. And I thought, it's just way too vast for me, for the issue of me being gay even being an issue anymore, mm -hmm. right? And so it, it gave me a sense of freedom that uh, I was able to finally let go of needing to feel like I needed to be something for somebody else. Yeah. And so when, when you did, when that awakening happens, because I can, I can definitely relate to that awakening of the cosmos, right? That, mm. And what it, does, what it did for me was very similar. Like it just simply it put things in perspective, right? That blue, that pale blue dot on, it's like a piece of dust, right? Yep. Like, yeah. Um, and it does mean, for, for me anyway as well, like you said, it means I don't have to worry about it. Like this, this is the way it's supposed to be, right? I mean, there still is this sense of miraculous mm -hmm. that in all of what exists in the universe, the, the idea of the luckiness mm -hmm. of our planet being just far enough away yeah. from the sun to have on it the natural resources of oxygen and water uh, and, you know, and soil that can grow plants and all these things so that it can sustain life. And that that life has over three or four billion years simply survived and mutated to survive in a way that got us to this place where we as this makeup of you know, cells have a sense of consciousness mm -hmm. and an awareness of who we are. Yeah. And that we're able to build not only a world environment for ourselves, but build relationships with ourselves mm -hmm. and with other people um, is, is something that is absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. And so I feel privileged. Privileged to be alive, privileged to be aware of who I am. And, well, I think uh, that's what makes it, in my mind, even more of a privilege, right? Yeah. Is that is that it is so lucky. Yeah. Like it, it, that's the miracle. Yeah, absolutely. Right of our existence is that we're we're here. Yeah. Like a one in four hundred trillion chance that you're you and I'm me and yeah. they're them and that's pretty cool. Yeah, and <laughs> and you know again that we uh, that we are um, our our reproduction and replication took place in this time in world history. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and when you, when you take a look at the history of the world. Humans have only existed in the, if you took a look at an annual calendar, we're in the day 365, 11th hour, or the 11th p.m. hour of that day. That's all we've really existed in the time of, of you know, of humanity on Earth. Um, so, yeah, we're, uh, we're very fortunate. Well, yeah, and I mean, even humans in general haven't been here that long. No, exactly. It, it's just such a... Um, I just wanted to ask about, I guess, coming from like going through conversion therapy and then coming through to um, live as a heterosexual male, I'm assuming, for when you were married. I identified as heterosexual at the time, but 
referencing back to the idea that I never dreamt as a heterosexual. Yeah. I, I now know that I wasn't authentic mm -hmm. to that. So, yeah. so that must have been like, I, I'm, I'm curious as to how you reconcile that with yourself through, mm. the, through the years. Because I am coming, I'll just use my own experience as, a, as kind of a platform, I guess. But it's like coming from what my being hidden in the closet until I came out, which was about, well, I was 24 when I first came out, and then I went right back in because I was terrified. Yeah. Um, and then to come fully out again over the last probably 10 years, right? Um, to be fully open with my queer, with yeah. who I am. Yeah. I can't imagine going through literally working in the church and having to go through that. Not to mention being married as well, because that always stood in the way of me having a what I determined as a meaningful relationship. Because every time they would come up, the person would leave. Well, and, and it's interesting because I think, um, again, on the topic of being lucky, mm -hmm. I was lucky mm -hmm. to have a wife who um, was so compatible to live with. Mm -hmm. um, she was my best friend. We have four amazing kids together. And even after, um, you know, I had to take her through the heartbreak of the um, trauma of a relationship not going forward. We still remain friends. We still do family vacations together. We still do things together as, as a collection of families. We're very much, uh, I guess, maybe that modern family. So, you know, I, I was, she gave me the space to be able to understand my own identity and to let go of that particular part of our relationship without having to let go or lose it all. And that's a rare thing. Very rare. Um, I know that one of the things I had uh, in me, uh, available to me at the time was a support network, uh, a Calgary men's <coughs> group uh, that had at least 50 or 60 men who all had gone through, um, you know, uh, straight relationships, being married, having families, and having to come to that uh, point of crisis where you recognize that your authentic self is, is queer, not straight. Mm -hmm. And um, many of them were shut off or shunned mm -hmm. by families and um, you know, experienced some very strong relationship trauma that I would, I've never had to go through. So I'm mm -hmm. very fortunate that way. And so as you're found, like you're, do you, are your parents alive? No, both my parents have passed. Yeah. Um, so I'm orphaned in that sense. Um, when I left, no, back in the day of, of my time at college, part of the reparative therapy uh, issue was I was literally kicked out of college in my senior year, um, told that I could not return to university, even though I had invested three and a half years of my time and money into getting my degree. I was not going to be allowed to graduate unless I could identify as, you know, as heterosexual, as, as healed. Um, so, but it was during that time when I believe school that both my parents were alive. Mm -hmm. Now, so what they would have understood at that time was that I myself didn't want to be that way. Yeah. So they, they were, you know, probably compassionate and sympathetic to my struggle, but they, they had no reason to look at me, um, as a person with a queer identity. It was yeah. more of a person with a problem that wanted a, a cure, right? Mm -hmm. And so they would have been supportive that way. But uh, no, they're not, uh, they're not a part of that. Now, my siblings have embraced my queerness. Um, so I do have that uh, sense of uh, family support. 
um, you know, so it's been good for that. That's good. Yeah, so I was curious about the family and how yeah. the, your, your family dynamics would be after living a whole life, right, as yeah. a married, married man. And, and again, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, uh, I feel privileged because I'm married to an amazing guy. We've mm -hmm. been together for 10 years now. And, um, and his Congrats. family, thanks, his family is not that way. You know, there is, um, there is this sense of um, their, their belief system overrides their relationship with him as a son and have, um, and have uh, never made space uh, to support him as, as queer, as gay, and having a, a husband instead of a wife. So, yeah. you know, very much um, almost in a passive-aggressive way, you know, honey, we love you and we're praying for you. You know that type of approach. Yeah, and that and that is never that never feels good to hear that. No, and I I, I honestly don't think that they understand what the how those words resonate. Yeah, they probably couldn't. No, because they honestly and, and with I'm sure their good intention, they really mm -hmm. do feel that what they're offering is uh, is love and support. Yeah, but it is um, they don't understand the um, the razor blades that come with that. Right? Yeah. And that's like the lingering, I, I always have, and you can, maybe you can clarify this or even just talk to me about it if you want, but <laughs> I always, I still get all kinds of like Christian shit popping up in my head, even though I don't, I'm not a Christian. Um, and it's like, I know I'm, I'm only on the, I'm really early in my transition from Christianity. Like mm -hmm. I really am in that conversion, I guess. <laughs> the deconversion? Deconversion would be my thought of it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely happening, right? Like, but yeah. it's still, there's still these like ideas that come up, and I don't know where, know where they're from. I just remember them from church, right? Like that's it. You know, and I and I think I begin to understand that this little um, you know puddle of fat inside my brain that well inside my head that's called a brain, um, you know, has an incredible memory and storage data beta you know data system mm -hmm. um, and memory storage system, and a lot of those experiences are embedded in the way we um, have filtered life. Mm -hmm. um, I jokingly tell my husband that you know when Alzheimer's comes, he's going to have to cope with me singing church hymns again, you know, because it's just <laughs> kind of a part of who I am. And, yeah, uh, you know, that's one of those realities. I think, so. um, you never know. You mm -hmm. never know. But I, I um, you know, and I think in many ways, you know, um, there's actually been some scientific studies around the value of religion. And one of it is the idea of how it really does reduce stress for many people mm -hmm. because it gives them community and it gives them uh, purpose and it gives them an outlet. Um, it's a fairy tale, but at least it feels good, right? And well, and some people live the fairy tale better than others. Yeah, without a doubt. And, 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 without, and, and, and it's not... This is not a criticism of the person. Again, it's mm -hmm. the criticism of the idea mm -hmm. that these truths remain to be um, true without having any evidence. You know, and I think that that's the whole idea that faith is the essence of things not seen, mm -hmm. the substance of things hoped for. Yeah. Um, you know, this idea that uh, we don't need to, you know, we can have an answer, uh, we'll call it, the God of the gaps idea that we can have answers for all the things that we don't understand simply by claiming um, them to be, you know, God's intention uh, makes a lot of people comfortable because they don't have to really stop and think about it. So, 
you know, from that perspective, I, I can appreciate why and how easy it is mm -hmm. uh, to fall into the paradigm that I myself have value because something greater than me created me and gave me purpose in life. So. And that's interesting because regardless, something created us, right? Sure. <laughs> or we were created. Yeah, we had an origin. Yeah, we did not exist enough? and now we do. <laughs> and I think that's lucky enough, like almost divine enough, really. Yeah. Right? The mere fact that we were born. Any of us were born. Yeah, without a doubt. And and again, back to the whole issue of luck. That, you know, mm -hmm. we, you know, if people would just kind of just step back and look uh, with maybe some sense of skepticism, and I mean skepticism from the perspective of being willing to ask questions, mm -hmm. um, you know, what would it be like if you had been born to a family in a Muslim country? Would you still be a Christian, or would you believe, you know, in uh, in Islam as a faith? Likely Islam, because of the fact that that is what you know you were the environment you were born into. Mm -hmm. So, this idea that one particular religious view holds the truth mm -hmm. it fails in just the simple idea that most of that is supported by the very fact that the people who believe it simply happen to be born. Mm -hmm. uh, by their luck, maybe, in the culture and space yeah. and time where that was what the majority of the people thought, mm -hmm. right? So you yeah. just simply adapt what your tribe is, uh, is saying to be true. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's what I was born into, for sure. Yeah. Christianity, right? Yeah. And, and then adapted along the way to try to be a good person and, and do all the stuff that will keep you out of hell. And But I couldn't. By the time I was nine, I was already going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> just for thinking. Yeah. Right. Just for just for using the that quote unquote God given brain. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And yeah, it's interesting because I've always dreamt in both. Right. I've always dreamt both women and men. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been when you mentioned that it just got my brain going because it's it's been it's been like that. And when I was younger, very confusing. Right. Because I was around men who guys who were well, we didn't talk about it back then when I no. was young. Um, you, like we were talking before you got here um, about it, and I used to even, this is what embarrasses me now, is when I remember being young and keeping my mouth shut, hmm. right? Because hmm. I was scared. I was actually one of those, you know, bullies in high school. Were you? For sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're a bigger guy, I'm six foot four, I weigh in just under 300 pounds. I used to go by the handle of linebacker, you know, and kind of <laughs> had that football personification. And, mm -hmm. um, you know... As a as a person who presents in a kind of heterosexual masculine paradigm that would make other people feel like you know comfortable around me, mm -hmm. um, I was afraid is like that somebody might actually discover mm -hmm. that I was interested in men, not women, mm -hmm. and so to guard against that, yeah. you fall in line with the high school culture of. Picking on the fairy kids, you know, the guys that were just too infeminate to be, you know, um, you know, and, and so I was, I was a bit of a bully that way. I actually felt, um, I felt um, like I really needed to deal even with that aspect. Um, years later, it would have been about, um, I'm going to say about 20 years, 25 years after high school. I finally tracked down and found the guy that I used to bully and I took him out for coffee and I apologized. I said, yeah. I'm just so sorry because 
my my shame around my being gay is what made me um, attack who you were. Yeah. Right? So. Yeah, and, and I, I'm I'm glad you had an opportunity to to, to do that to yeah. cross that bridge that barrier because I don't remember being the bully, but I do remember being quiet. Yep. Right. Yeah. And and that is implicit complicit with it, right? It's For sure. My silence, but also, I drank a lot. Like that was where hmm. I started turning into alcohol and and other chemicals to numb that voice in my head and to allow me to, well, what I thought at the time, allow me to play football, allowed me to hmm. um, be one of the ruffians and do all that stuff because that way nobody would know. Just, right. you, you compensated and I compensated in a totally different way. Right? Yep. I, I uh, drank a lot and just did stuff that crazy guys do, right? Which, which brings us now to probably another place where we can take this conversation and that is moving forward. Mm -hmm. I really, you know, so now as a, as, a, as a queer person, I find myself as an advocate. Mm -hmm. An advocate for this idea that the only thing that is common about human sexuality is just how diverse it is. Mm -hmm. This paradigm that there is a hierarchy of that, you know, men who are attracted to women and women who are attracted to men and abstain from sex until married and married under the guise of a God, you know, uh, umbrella, kind of umbrella. Yeah. being the pinnacle of what it means to be in a relationship and everything else falls somewhere under that is still not quite reaching mm -hmm. this um, utopia of a relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, this paradigm that there is really, um, you know, um, only one aspect that we should all strive for is problematic. Mm -hmm. It is what continues to bring pain into the lives of people who understand themselves, but themselves don't fit. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a binary issue that they don't identify as a man or a woman, as male or female, whether they don't fit in the idea of having a strong heterosexual attraction mm -hmm. uh, to somebody of the opposite sex. And I think it's so important in this 2021 <laughs> that we start to create a safe space and a conversation around what gender and sexual diversity is really all about. Mm -hmm. If we can get to a place where we can see our peers as being our peers, mm -hmm. even if they identify you know, as gay or lesbian or transgender or, or even polyamorous. I mean, this idea that, you know, again, the paradigm is that one person to love mm -hmm. is, um, is not the truth of our human experience. If yeah. you just take a look at the evolution of who we are as a species, you know, we are a social network. We've, we, there are so many biological species on this planet that have some level of same-sex interaction mm -hmm. from, you know, from penguins that might mate with 
uh, or bond with a, a same-sex partner for their entire life. To promiscuity among the, you know, uh, among our cousins of the, uh, you know, the chimpanzees and the apes. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that we start to have this conversation mm -hmm. around shifting this idea of uh, of a hierarchy and a yeah. paradigm as to what gender and sexual mm -hmm. expression is at its best, and simply just be open to exploring this idea of diversity and giving space for people to be who they are. And you know what, I, I'll, I'll take a, a bit of a dangerous step here. I know that within the queer community, there's always been this conversation around uh, that this is not a choice. Mm -hmm. You know, I am gay um, by, by design. I'm not choosing to be this. Who would choose to go through this kind of trauma? <clears throat> I would love a world where people could choose to be if they wanted to be. Yeah. This idea that you, as a person, could explore, mm -hmm. you know, um, a relationship with somebody, a connection, be it just physical, with somebody that you're attracted to or you find attractive, go explore it mm -hmm. and see if there's something there. You know, I think that we, we come together for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. And simply that the, there can be moments where, you know, those relationships may be only, or the experiences may only be for a season or a reason. And without any shame to be able to kind of explore this idea of connection. Because I think, you know, especially in this time of COVID, have we not been challenged with one of the most basic fundamental losses? And that is human physical connection, mm -hmm. right? And so by being able to have that, you know, freedom to be able to explore that, what a different world we might have, right? Um, but but making space, and, and I think that this is part of my work in my volunteer side of things, is to continue to educate and advocate for this diversity. I recognize that it's okay to have a bias. Mm -hmm. Your bias simply reflects who you are. Yep. But the problem comes in when your bias portrays your choice of who you are or your identity of who you are as being better than somebody else. Yeah. That's when we create an us-them mm -hmm. environment. That's when we create division in, in culture and society. And, you know, and uh, we seem to fall apart as a species on that basis. Right? What do you think is the biggest barrier to that happening? To us being more open to explore? Because obviously some of us are very open to explore. But there's a huge, large population maybe that doesn't feel open to explore. Right. I w I'll go on record that I would say all fundamental religious organizations mm -hmm. have embedded in their doctrine mm -hmm. that gender and sexuality are defined and binary and no longer available to be explored. Mm -hmm. That it has to follow a code of conduct yeah. and, and an ideal. And so until that changes, mm -hmm. uh, we will continually be um, in some degree of a uh, cultural battle mm -hmm. between the freedom to explore and the freedom to be able to um, fit in without judgment. Yeah, I was going to suggest it was probably the fundamental religious organizations that stand in the way, especially because our politics seem to be so embedded with them. Uh, our laws, yeah. I mean, when you take a look at, at Canadian law or even, even issues around finance, you know, um, you know the the idea that um, you know marriage 
this separates value in common law to some degree, mm -hmm. um, that single relationships uh, with another individual, so in other words, two people, um, is valued differently than three or four, mm -hmm. you know, type of ideas. So um, we have within our tax code, within our law system, within our work environments, this um, protocol, uh, this bias that seems to define that. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting to me. And I, and I know lots of people, I know, well, not, I don't know lots, I know some people who are really good humans and they're humans of faith, right? Yeah, but absolutely. Their faith, but their faith is acted out in action. Like, there is no question. It's not absolutely. Just, it's not just... I kind of think they'd be good people with or without their faith. I agree. They would be. Yeah. yeah. I think you're right. And they just so happen to have faith as well, right? Yes. But even, even in those scenarios, this idea of exploring the different relationship possibilities and potential and potentialities for humans is I think it's got to be a part of our evolution too to be able to move away from oh well and that hierarchy the way you describe the hierarchy like I'm probably going to think about that for a long time after this conversation um, as long as my memory will allow um, but just thinking about it's so true because when when you hear someone online or you see someone online talk about someone who's trans saying something right yeah. and they almost have to qualify it or they seem they feel like they have to qualify this person's trans right what difference does it make like the message that person don't get me wrong no i, I, I hear you like what what about that message requires a trans person to say it? well and i i think what you know for for things to change we first have to identify what is different mm -hmm. and so i embrace my label mm -hmm. um and and i support those that choose to identify with particular labels um, mm -hmm. in terms of their own identity and those that choose to do to to not do that mm -hmm. and yet i i stand with you that this forward-looking uh, experience of what it means to be in community as human beings is a place where it just doesn't seem to matter whether or not a person was biologically identified as one gender and as they grew um, up and became aware of themselves, could really see how they want, uh, who they are authentically. Mm -hmm. And that is now a different gender than what they were assigned mm -hmm. at birth. Um, it, you're right, it just, it shouldn't matter. It, and I hope, you know, we do get to a place in a yeah. world where it doesn't matter. Yeah. And, and it's funny, we're, I think we are starting to see a little bit of a shift there. And this is a little bit of a pop, pop culture reference. But good on Dan Levy for creating a comedy, Schitt's mm. Creek, where this small town, if you watch through all these episodes, there is no time in any of those episodes that I can recall where the community ever identified a person's, you know, gender or sexual identity as part of the storyline mm -hmm. to, to separate it off, yeah. right? to draw attention to it. Mm -hmm. It has to be one of the most, um, uh, it's certainly a culture where we would hope to get to, mm -hmm. where people can simply fall in love and, um, you know, one 
and, and, and it can be with somebody without having to identify that they're gay, that they just simply are two people that are in love. Right? Yeah, so. two humans in love, or... Or, or three. Or three. Or there, was a, there was a, a, you know, kind of a polyamorous thing going on there for a little while uh, in uh, one season. I thought, good for them mm-hmm. for exploring this, right? So... Well, I think, and that's vital. I've never seen the show, so I might yeah. have to watch it. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Because to see that that change in the in the media that we consume, that's a yep. big part of the change. Right? Well, and and I'm sure if anyone was, you know, is in, uh, you know, from an education perspective, studies um, TV media uh, or TV, uh, you know, storylines, uh, we've definitely gotten from where in the back in the '60s and '70s and '80s. Queer people were considered, you know, uh, predators and criminals, and you know, first to get killed off, and all of these different storylines. Uh, you just take a look at the whole history behind the change in narrative around that. Um, another pivotal one would have been *Brokeback Mountain*, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Here in Calgary, where um, a, a, a regular, well-done movie. Uh, with some, you know, stars that do I did identify as and do identify as, as heterosexual, mm-hmm. still took on the characteristic and played the roles of uh, these two gay men, and um, it was it was uh, well done at the time. It really made a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, stop and have to rethink through what, yeah, you know, what is normal, right? So. It's so it's good that that kind of every aspect of culture pushes pushes that envelope, right, in yep. terms of that. And, I think I'm, I'm just way too far ahead of myself in terms of wishing we didn't have to point those things out about ourselves, right? But that we could just be... Uh, I think it's okay to have a Star Trekian perspective of, <laughs> you know, what our future should look like. Yeah, well, it's kind of, it's kind of where, what I hope for, right? Cause Absolutely. Because there's, there's just so much pain, especially when we're talking about um, being an owner of the alphabet, as we said. <laughs> We were talking about it earlier. LGBTQ, we own the alphabet. So, yeah. and you said something funny, Sam, but I can't remember what it was. Um, but to be able to just be right and not not be um, not yeah, the people that are, are stuck, that are still suffering, that aren't able to come forward or come out in whatever capacity that means. Um, and I, I do. I appreciate the idea of exploring more of the. Um, not just obviously along the LGBTQ continuum, right? But the, the fact of just human continuum, right? which is encompasses all of it, obviously, yeah. because we're all humans. But to be able to branch into more than just the one and one, right? The one and one, yeah. two. And being able to explore as adults. Obviously, we're talking about consenting adults. We're not yeah. talking about adults and kids. Like, yeah. um, because I'm saying that out loud because there's probably some people out there who might be... Mis- yeah, misconstrued. Yeah, misconstrued, thinking like, when you mentioned the old media, what first popped into my head was the only time I remember seeing a trans human in a, in a movie or a show was as a prostitute, hmm. right? For the longest time. And, and in many ways that did actually represent the truth of culture mm-hmm. at the time, that people who identified as trans could only find a viable income in the sex trade industry. That's right. Because, you know, the the traditional forms of employment were just simply not available to them because people would not accept them in their work environments, right? Um, And and even when it comes to the issue, and sorry, I'll I'll steer us down this path 
stream for just a second. That's all good. Um, that the sex trade work is should also be a part mm -hmm. of our human experience, and we should not berate and belittle people who who are adults and have chosen, you know, this uh, form of, of uh, <laughs> dynamic that they, you know, so. You know, if, if, as long as I would rather spend time and energy making sure that they are supported and safe mm -hmm. and have, you know, what they need to be able to pursue what it is they want to do um, without any shame mm -hmm. um, or, or legal consequence or other. Mm -hmm. so. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it is important, right? It is. It's in that, and that specifically is a part of my life, right? It's a part of my history. Yes. Yeah. was um, hustling for money. And there's nothing but shame involved in it. There's nothing but guilt involved in it. And not just because it's prostitution, right? But also because I'm then acting out my bisexuality as well, right? Well, and it's interesting because, you know, probably the first time I'll ever confess this on, uh, you know, on, on air, um, that was the beginning of my exploration mm -hmm. was I sought out the company of an escort. Mm -hmm. Because it felt safe, like I didn't have to worry about whether they wanted to be there, whether they would judge me afterwards, whether they would have shame, mm -hmm. right? And I think that there's another whole conversation around people in our, in our community who go through the trauma of, of engaging with somebody who is curious and is interested and, you know, and... and and is around somebody who identifies as being openly gay and they want to experiment a bit, but then when they do, you know, they, there's this embedded shame in them makes them lash out afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not always safe for, you know, queer people to be able to just simply um, explore mm -hmm. um, because there's always the risk that the person that they're, you know, interested in is afterwards going to feel some degree of shame. Um, you know, so from that perspective, sorry, I got off on a No, no, it's okay. This is actually, this is all a part of it, yeah. right? Because there's no way to ignore the fact that being um, bisexual, transgender, lesbian, gay, whatever it is, there's an element that we've had to hide, right? Yeah. We've had to hide in bathhouses. We've had to hide in public washrooms, public spaces, right? Mm. Um, throughout history, where I'm, where I'm going. Yeah. Not necessarily this last year, but <laughs> historically. It's still people, happening. <laughs> I know it's still happening, for well, sure. Of course. We yeah. need connection, right? So. And, and because we've always had to be ashamed. Yeah. Right? And there was, it was never okay for us to just meet in a park and yeah. talk and be open and hug and kiss and have contact, right? Yeah. Um, like, I, I almost get teary-eyed sometimes when I'm walking downtown and see two men holding hands. Yeah. Like it, it, it does, it does something to me right now, right? Like yeah. I, I never dreamt growing up that we would see that. I just didn't yeah. think it was possible. Yep, and, and yeah, and, and I think part of where you started to go, and, and I'll pick up on that thread, is the idea of what would be seen as an open relationship where mm -hmm. people can, um, you know, have a, have a significant person in their life uh, and, and a lifetime commitment with that individual, but still give your partner the freedom to be able to um, develop relationships, friendships with other people that may involve some degree of sexual connection mm -hmm. as well too. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's um, 
you know, this idea that you could you can put a capacity on love, um, and that trust is only valid if it's constrained by monogamy, um, is uh, is again back to this talk about a paradigm of what you know this hierarchy back yeah. to this idea that the healthiest relationships are monogamous, mm -hmm. heterosexual, you know, is, uh, is a fallacy, it really is. Yeah, and you, we both know that's a fallacy. I think every, anyone listening would know it's kind of a fallacy in general. Yeah. Now, there's very specific individual circumstances that work out really great, right? But a lot of them don't. Like a lot of the, the situations where people force themselves into it, um, and I, I work with lots of people who come out of those kinds of arenas, right, where they forced to stay because of finances, whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, that only re-traumatizes the person over and over again if they're in an abusive cycle with people. Yeah. Uh, and you're less likely to have, well, I'm not saying it's impossible, of course, because when you start adding three and four people together, things can happen, right? People can get mad, they can get sad, they can get hurt, they can get all kinds of things. But I've yet to see, or experience, I should say, um, in an environment where there's more than just two, where there's that level of like possessiveness mm. that two gets, right? Sometimes, and, and not everybody, of course, right? Well, and, and with, with, with avoiding the danger of making then multiple connections, mm -hmm. a hierarchy to something that is monogamous, mm -hmm. uh, is some, is we, we don't need to go that direction either, right? Exactly. Because there are people um, who, thrive best mm -hmm. in monogamy, mm -hmm. right? And, and in a long lifetime committed relationship. And that's where they are, you know, they're, they will thrive best and excellent, right? Yeah. But not to say that that paradigm of a relationship is in any way better than what somebody else is having. Precisely, right? Yeah, because there's, there's all kinds of, every relationship that involves people will have downsides, potential, right? Oh, and, and when you start adding more to the mix, mm -hmm. you've got this opportunity to really have to sort through who you are. <laughs> yeah, you, you know. gotta be willing, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, yeah, it's, it, but, but, but there is that possibility then of, of not needing your, your spouse to be the person that fills every bucket in your life, mm -hmm. right? Uh, where you can, um, and, and nor would you have to be then also that for somebody else where you have to meet and satisfy every expert, you know, every desire or expectation that that person has. And that has what, that has always terrified me. It's always been one of my Achilles heels was I never, not for someone to be that for me, because I never thought that was possible, yeah. right? I'm still not 100% certain. But for me to be that for someone else terrifies me yeah. because I know how fallible I am. I yeah. know how... Um, not just fallible in terms of just being human, but just like fallible in terms of everything. Yeah. Like yeah, every part of me is fallible. And um, I can't remember where I was going with that. Uh -huh. That's good. I'll just leave it at that. There you go. <laughs> but just recognizing that I, I don't want to be that for someone, the whole thing, you know? Um, and I don't want one person to be that for me either. Uh, not, be, not for any reason that it's wrong, just no. for me, it doesn't fit, right? It right. doesn't feel right. Yeah. And I, and I think that's the diversity aspect that we're trying to bring into the conversation, mm -hmm. is that there is no one model that works. Yeah, precisely. Right? 
Yeah. But a model can work well for any individual. Yeah. It's not like models don't work. It's mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, this idea that a particular model has any type of hierarchy or paradigm uh, to be the best uh, is the fallacy, right? Yeah. And then we talk about that all the time in our podcast in terms of recovery, right? Right. Because lots of people think there's only one way to recover. You can only do it with abstaining yep. or nothing, right? And then there's people who are in the middle more and there's people on the other end who yeah. say there's, you don't need to abstain from anything. Um, but the truth is there's so many different ways to do it. Hmm. that. But obviously when people are talking about their way, it can come across as being the best way, right? Because people like to really pump their way up, yep. right? Because it works for them. Totally, right? It's 100% accurate for them. Yep. yep, absolutely true. Yeah, I think the trouble we as humans get into that I've seen anyway, is, and myself, is that when it works for me really well, there's a tendency in the ego to want to say, yeah, it'll work for you too. Mm. <laughs> but those the of us ego, the ego mm -hmm. is something I've been exploring in this last couple of years, and um, it is, <laughs> it's, a, it's an amazing challenge mm -hmm. to have to face one's ego. Um, yeah, it, 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 it comes up in every form of jealousy and, um, you know, um, expectations and all of those things that um, certainly can get in the way of, of who you'd rather be. Right? Mm -hmm. so. I'm curious, what, you know, it's sometimes easy for me, maybe for us, to talk about things that we advocate for or we have settled on and worked our way through. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you're challenged with or working through that mm -hmm. you want to Always. introduce as a conversation? <laughs> Always. Like, let's dive into something that we're not comfortable with. Yeah, Always. I am uncomfortable most of the time being a chaplain. Hmm. <laughs> Not because I don't like being able to work with people because I love that part. Yeah. The only reason I, I, one of the main reasons I still do it is because I get to have face-to-face -face with humans that are having trouble and that are doing well. But, but it's face-to-face -face with humans and it's nothing between us. <clears throat> and that, that's a challenge though, to reconcile oh. myself with the ideas um, of what I know chaplaincy looks like to people. Right? Okay, so how would you reinvent them? Um, well, I think we've talked about this before, and one of my... Not on air, yeah. No, no, of course not, <laughs> just in general. Yeah. Um, but the, how, I how I would re-look at it is what I suggested before. Hmm. I would turn it into compassionate support, hmm. right? And whatever you name it is fine, whatever it's named is fine, but I, I, still, I still believe that. I yep. believe it's just supposed to be compassionate support for humans, right? And um, I don't, I don't have. How can I word this? I don't have any internal like pain when I hear the word chaplaincy, mm -hmm. but that's only because I'm used to it, right? It might. It's it's also because. And you're fortunate that your lived experience has not put you in places where that's been problematic. Precisely. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't been the victim of missionaries. I haven't been the victim of um, genocide as yeah. an indigenous person, right? Yeah. Like I, though those, um, I'm very fortunate again, talk about lucky. Yeah. Uh, but that's probably something I walk with almost every day is where yeah. I'm like, am I being authentic by being here, right? Yeah. And um, sometimes I wonder because I, for the longest time people just assumed I was Christian. 
and which is fine. I mean, without a doubt, the title of chaplain lends to that. Precisely. Paradigm, so. Yeah, and I think that's. I think I'm coming. I'm, I'm more comfortable with it now because I've been able to get more involved with people like yourself mm -hmm. and to hear and like Michelle, like to be and Darcy and Sam and like my partner Heather, like the, to be able to have these conversations regularly for the first time in my life is mm -hmm. very, very, very freeing. Mm -hmm. And it's helping me with the chaplaincy thing because what I'm trying to keep focused on is it's not about the name of it. I get that. Mm -hmm. Although I absolutely would be happy if the name changed. Like mm -hmm. there's no question about it. It wouldn't hurt me one bit. I would be probably, I probably feel like a little bit lighter in the heart maybe, mm -hmm. right? For other people, more so than for myself. Yeah. Um, because I, I may not walk by that chapel, right? Any chapel, and feel hurt, or the anguish other people feel. But I definitely feel a pinch, right? I feel a pinch of, oh, man. If only I could forget half of what, even half of what they told me. Mm. You know, um, it would be easier. But the truth is, that's probably the, the biggest one. My my sexuality today, like. Um, being bisexual, I, I'm kind of still coming into that, yep. for sure. Yep. Uh, but I don't have any, I don't have any difficulty with it. Like I'm not pent up about it. You know, um, I feel safe, to mm. be open. Like even, even so, so safe that I talk about it in chapel meetings, right? right. Chaplaincy meetings is because. Right. Well, I feel safe there because I'm just not afraid. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel safe here because I'm not afraid. And yeah. I feel safe in my day-to-day -day life because less and less, I have less and less reasons to be afraid. Right. Right? Um, what about yourself? Hmm. Yeah, you know, that's a really, I, you always ask questions that you think, you know, you're going to get somebody else thinking about something and then mm -hmm. all of a sudden you get asked the question yourself. Um, I, I'm be, it's a really good question. I, I'm, I, I'm honestly not sure. I'm, I'm trying to understand and discover my own capacity to love. Mm -hmm. Um, this idea of, of, uh, connection and community with people. Um, I now identify at one time, you know, identified as a Christian. I now identify as an atheist. Mm -hmm. um, and for you know, for most people, they have a misunderstanding. Um, they think atheists are anti-theists, you know, that we're against God yeah. or the concept of God. And in reality, what it is is that I've just gotten to a place where I don't actually see uh, testable, manageable evidence for this idea of a supernatural being that has created um, the humans. Um, so, you know, that's simply for me, an atheist is something that, that identifies what I'm not mm -hmm. or what I don't believe anymore. Yeah. Um, but I'm, you know, with that, um, engaged now in that community to try to replicate um, this idea of building community and having a connection. Um, and especially the challenge around, you know, things like when you end up with a global pandemic and to keep people alive, you literally need to separate them off, mm -hmm. you know, and to put them into different safe spaces. Um, but through that all, I think I've, in this last year, the one thing that has become the most um, present to my thinking 
is this idea of what does connection mean? Like, what does it mean to be in a relationship with another human being? Um, I had the good fortune of being married to my soulmate. But I also have some very good people in my life that are, you know, that are dear to me, that I want to make sure that they understand that, you know, that they're important to me, right? So I think it's just this idea of, of um, connecting with human beings on a, on a whole new, different level. Um, and, um, you know, that's kind of where my journey and my, my questions and, and my uncomfortableness, but my intrigue has taken me this far so long. Right on. Yeah. yeah, and I think when you said atheist, I think, like, oftentimes I, I waffle between atheism, because, mm -hmm. I mean, really, I'm only a short step away from it. <laughs> so when I'm honest, I'm a short step. It's a short jump, not even a jump. Um, because that, that just hasn't been a struggle anymore, right? Because I'm finding connection, like you were talking about. Mm. Connection to me is the most important thing, like with people, right? Is that how do we help each other as humans? Even mm. if it's just to talk to each other or hold each other or whatever it is, right? Mm. Um, because we all need different things at different times. Um, I, I just think that, yeah, thank you. Well, That's then, a tough I, question, I think, but you know, and I also think that when it comes to the idea, the value of connection, I think mm -hmm. when we take a look at mental health, um, is that you know there is there's enough evidence out there that goes beyond just a chemical imbalance or the need to use medication to help people <laughs> find um, a stronger position in mental health, and I'm certainly an advocate for that. But the idea that a lot of that has been triggered or brought about uh, by misconnection, mm -hmm. by the lack of, you know, of, of that. So I think connection is, is a vital thing in the survival of us as a human species. I agree. Like, and, and real, like, connection. Yeah. Right? Like, I, don't get me wrong. I know there's, like, there's lots of um, space and times and places for Zoom and online stuff. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I don't feel the same. Right, I, I, when I do that versus, yeah. I mean, having an online, say, a Zoom one-on-one um, -on -one counseling appointment is much more challenging than having it in person. Like, it's I don't know why. Yeah. It's just more challenging. Yeah, I would agree. You know, not just the lag and stuff like that with the online, but in general that connection. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And 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 you know, it's it's uh, it is. Um, for some, I think it's it's an interesting uh, understanding of themselves. I, I, in a weird way, the isolation has been good for me. I've actually my this side of me that would be identified as an introvert has been able to find some calm and quiet at times <laughs> without this obligation to constantly be engaged uh, with people. Um, but I guess in many ways I'm also, also as much of an extrovert, and so I struggle with that a bit uh, in terms of having those connections. But um, yeah. Right on. What time we got? About an hour. About an hour. A little over an hour. How are you doing, James? Do you have anything else you want to talk about? Wow. Um, anything? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I. Um, I'm curious to. Can I ask you about. Ask, so here's, here's where I'll go next. Okay. I am literally an open book. I love this concept of ask me anything. I, 
find myself a little bit mentally fatigued at times if my narrative is all about what I advocate for. Mm -hmm. But I am I love this idea of simply just being asked and given the opportunity mm -hmm. uh, to uh, engage on something. So ask away. Well, you mentioned volunteering. Yes. And would you are you able to talk about that more? Talk sure. about what yeah, you're absolutely into? right on. Um, I currently serve as uh, co-chair uh, to uh, the Gender and Sexual Diversity Advisory Board um, for the Calgary Police Service. Right. And so uh, one of the things uh, about this particular board is that it has a long history. It's actually been engaged um, as an advisory board with uh, CPS for over 14 years. Um, it did start off as a, um, an engagement with community when, this, when the police made some significant missteps in how they engaged legally with the, uh, with, uh, the gay men's community in our city uh, through the bathhouse raids. Um, and as a result, uh, really sincerely traumatized uh, the lives of many individuals during that time. Awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, so obviously uh, to, to deal with that, there was a, an advocacy and an advisory position uh, set up where they were consulting with community. It has emerged and evolved into a significant opportunity to really engage with CPS on this whole issue or the topic of, of diversity. Diversity in race, diversity in gender, in sexual expression, in, in the intersection of many things. And I have the privilege of serving as uh, one of the chairs of the, what we'll call now the GSD Advisory Board. We are only one of, I think, seven or eight advisory boards that represent different parts of Calgary. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them are uh, ethnically based, mm -hmm. some of them are language based or culturally based. Um, and some of them, um, even uh, we have now a new board for um, representing people um, of physical disabilities as well. So it isn't just about culture and language and identity. Um, so, you know, I had the privilege of serving in that capacity. And I've seen through these last few years and under the new leadership, um, a, a real genuine, sincere interest in, in interacting with their advisory boards to get feedback on what can they do better. Mm -hmm. They give us opportunity to preview what their strategies and thoughts are about their goals and aspirations of being a police service in Calgary and, and they listen to our feedback. Um, so I, I feel privileged to be in that role. So um, yeah, I've been with uh, the GSD advisory board for a little over three years now and wow. served two of them as uh, as one of the chairs. Yeah, right on. Well, thank you for doing that. It's, um, it, well, it's, it's, it's important. Uh, it, it is, without a doubt. Um, I know that, you know, embedded in every organization is its own history. Um, and without a doubt, um, you know, I think that when you take a look overall at the culture of police, it tends to draw in people uh, into its membership who might fit a more rigid paradigm of what it means to be a good citizen 
Um, and sometimes those paradigms become biases and those biases become practice and the way they interact with civilians is, uh, is inappropriate. Um, and so, you know, it is our constant job to be able to help them to hold up the mirror at times and say, is this best practice? What can we do better? And uh, we see ourselves as being this bridge uh, between community, the community that I represent, mm -hmm. and um, and the police service that that does, I believe, authentically wants to serve, mm -hmm. you know, the citizens of Calgary. Um, the challenge is that, you know, it is culturally an organization uh, originally from the RCMP, you know, in terms of uh, the Mounted Police and how Canada expanded. Uh, the settlers took over uh, the lands of Canada. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, you know, it's, certainly it has its own history there in terms of uh, suppression and um, you know, um, the, the settlers literally taking the lands from the indigenous people. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, so it has its history. And out of that, they have continued to change and evolve, but there still is embedded in that you know, certain elements that need to be challenged, need to be looked at, right? And so our job as an advisory board is to hold up a mirror, uh, to ask a bunch of questions, to have them rethink and think through what it is that they can do better, um, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a uh, civilian organization that is there to serve the people, mm -hmm. not police mm -hmm. the people. Right? Yeah. So. Yeah, serving and policing are two different things. Yes. Yeah. You can do both together if you if you figure it out. But. Well, we still, you know, I I would not want to live in a world of anarchy. Yeah. Maybe. You know, I don't think we've evolved as a human species far enough along <laughs> to be close. without. You know uh, what it you know what's what it means to be a good citizen. You know, in terms of uh, <laughs> what can we do to help others thrive and be their best. Yeah. Um, there still is many people that would like, not many, but enough people that want to take advantage of others mm -hmm. in a harmful way where you need uh, the law to be able to keep uh, society together. So I'm mm -hmm. certainly not about getting rid of police, but certainly about redefining yeah. you know, what that service looks like. Well, and thank you for thank you for what you do. And I always think of this when I go to the service and I think of Michelle as well, because I think of all the work that folks like yourself are doing um, and her allow for me to be open there, right? So I think about it always in terms of who came before me, right? And who who came, who was beaten so that I could go into a police building and talk about being bisexual, yeah. right? In front of men. Because I would never would have done that. Like there's obvious and my I'm not alone. There's gonna be other people within the service who they might not know who to thank, right? Mm -hmm. um, because we rarely know who to thank for the privilege that we have. And I, I don't think... And it's often because they're no longer there. That's right. Yeah. That's the hard truth of it, right? It is. That they weren't able to survive yeah. through the trauma of, of what was, you know, held against them. Yeah. Right? But through enough loss, uh, it becomes mm -hmm. somebody's gain. And that's, a, that's the... I just I try to keep that fresh in my heart, right? When I, especially when I'm around organizations that are a little bit more rigid, you know, uh, it it uh, 
it's important because I know that it's not the same as it was five years ago. It's CPS, I mean. Yes. Because I've been there just about five and a half, I think, five and a half. And we're hoping that five years from now, they yeah. aren't who they are today. I'm hoping the same. Like, and I, but I believe they won't be, right? Yes. Because I've seen, um, you know, five years ago, I was not going to be invited into a meeting to do a podcast, a live stream podcast with a, a member, right? Mm. But I am. I mm. have been. And so that is something that is completely new, that a person like me would be invited in. And they, I mean, they even sometimes it comes out when I'm talking to some of the members. Mm. They're like, well, just look at you. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get it. I have tattoos and a beard. I get it. I look like a criminal. I get it. And what's interesting about that is, is on the flip side of that coin, uh, look at me. Mm -hmm. I'm 59. I'm white. Mm -hmm. I present masculine. I own a construction company. My paradigm is so easy that when I walk in, you know, for me to identify as gay, they're like, yeah, dude, cool, you know, um, because I'm not a threat, right? Yeah. Um, but when, when I, I recognize that privilege mm -hmm. and I want then to be the loudest voice in the room, not for me because I'm, I got what I need out of this gig, right? Yeah. Uh, but to be a voice for other people. And uh, I had the privilege of sitting with Michelle in a room uh, just in the last six months and, and she brought with her you know, the reports of what has yet to be in changed around, you know, changes that need to happen for the indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought, I said to her at the end of it, I said, Michelle, you can stand on my shoulders because I, you know, this, what we've been able to change uh, for the LGBTQ plus community is still yet to happen for so many other people. Yeah. And um, I will let others stand then on my shoulders because I don't need that, you know, that um, that to just be about us. Yeah. I, 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 it's it's kind of cool to be queer now, you know, mm. and yet it's not cool for so many other people that face yeah. that same uh, degree of, um, of disconnection and isolation mm -hmm. based on who they are. Yeah. And that's the that's the thing. I, what you mentioned, like standing on shoulders. Like, I just always want to be able to. If people are listening to us, then we have to talk, right? Like yeah, that's absolutely. And that's like we we have to share those ideas, those thoughts, yeah. you know. Um, and I, me too. Like the Darcy and his family had like broken me wide open, right? and we, and not in a bad way, not like a baseball bat over the head kind of way. Well, kind of, kind of, not totally unlike that. But the, it's been amazing, and to to think that to think that anyone wouldn't listen, right? With with that very real, the very re reality of having all this land that we have supposedly, it, which we took, right? And that people, some people just don't want to acknowledge that we took it, right? Well, and and what's interesting is I recognize my own. Um, problems in the way I used to think mm -hmm. that I used to recognize that we took the land and I thought, yeah, we did it. Yeah, there's a festival. Right, side. that, that yeah. we were successful. You know, we need to stop this complaining because we are not the settlers, we're the conquerors, right? 
And, you know, human culture has always had that. If you take a look at European history, if you take a look at Middle East you know, history, how many times countries have changed names and changed religions and changed all these things because somebody more powerful came along. And I always saw that as being the, um, the, ex the experience of strong, you know, people, you know, and, and I, I identified with that, right? That I could be... You know, that we weren't settlers, we were conquerors, right? Mm -hmm. So, but then you begin to look at me and go, that's just fucked up, you know? <laughs> um, and, um, you know, when I look at things now, within side of, you know, the history of the indigenous people, and I think of how, in so many ways, they got community right, um, long before we ever showed up. And how we really screwed that up, you know, when we then imposed this, um, you know, this European continental religious perspective mm -hmm. on what it meant to be human. Yeah. And uh, what, a, what a loss, right? Mm -hmm. And we need to get back to some of these basics of, Mm -hmm. I, have the, I have the privilege of my son-in-law being Métis and, and um, you know, hearing about his family's history and, and um, yeah, it's just a, such a joy to have him in, in our family and I think um, without, you know, I get the privilege of having his, you know, his mm -hmm. family history as a part of mine now. Yeah. Right? But um, yeah, so it's, it's um, this is where we're at now. Yeah. Right? So we need to start making making things better. Yeah, because we want to make sure we want to make sure we do better. You know. Well, you know, and, and I and I think you know, to be honest, maybe I'm I'm still <clears throat> I'm still trying to find my own place in this understanding of being awakened mm -hmm. uh, without being woke. I, I still <laughs> that scares me being yeah. woke. Well, you know, and, and, and I don't necessarily know if it's where I want to land, mm -hmm. um, because I think, you know, that there is still a challenge uh, to be able to have opportunity to have conversations mm -hmm. around ideas without being canceled, without being, you know, um, um, shut down. Yeah. Because you simply, you know, um, want to in simply engage on on an idea or a topic, um, you know, this this um, there is a there is a challenge inside our our culture of some aspects uh, where the pendulum swings so far so quickly yeah. that people just don't have a chance to get. Caught up. If you think of our biological evolution, literally taking, you know, hundreds of thousands of years mm -hmm. to change some simple paradigms on, you know, the, the idea of what our body is, um, we need to give our brains and our culture some some opportunity at least to find a space to be able to make those shifts. Yeah. And this is where I think you know maybe my my work at CPS is um, where I want to to make my biggest. Um, imprint my fingerprints on it is simply just to talk about diversity from a gender and sexual perspective um, to simply get people to think about it 
I am not going to require of anyone that they believe a certain thing or act a certain way around these issues or topics. And if they don't, I will, you know, uh, be hostile towards them. That's not who I am, right? Yeah. I want to be able to have, uh, you know, a, a place where speech can be free mm -hmm. and ideas can be challenged yeah. and people are not the object of a conversation, mm -hmm. right? So. Yeah, and then it's not a personal thing. It's about the ideas, right? And, and keeping it away, I, I try to keep it away from the judgment of people and thinking more about the ideas as being maybe just outdated, a lot of it, right? Mm. Because we don't know what we don't know, and we didn't know what we didn't know, right? But now we know. This will, say, this will sound like the most gay thing I've said all night, but it's you know from Oprah who says, when we know better, we do better. Yeah. Right? And I think that that's really what we're, what we're talking about there. Is, mm -hmm. is, um, yeah. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Well, my and, and I really appreciate you coming in and, and sharing with us, James. It has been an honor. And thank you for an opportunity to engage. Yeah, it's an honor for us, for sure. For me, for sure. I won't speak for them. They <laughs> can speak for themselves. <laughs> it's definitely an honor. Yeah. Sweet.